This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. Uh, I'm on the line with Christian Benedetti of, of Wolves and People Brewery out in Newburgh, Oregon. Um, welcome to the podcast, Christian. Thanks for having me. We are in another remote edition of the podcast, and uh, Christian is someone I've known for a very long time now, I guess 11 years, uh, and actually predating the world of beer. Um, I first uh, uh, entered Christian's world back in 2009 when he was writing a story on helmet camming for the New York Times uh, <laughs> style section. And I was the president of the New York City Mountain Bike Association. I was pretty active helmet camera, like filming with video cameras strapped to the side of my bike helmet at the time to try to get footage. And, uh, and you reached out to me and uh, wanted me to test some helmet cams. And it ended up being a uh, half-page, full-color story on the back of the New York Times Sunday style section. <laughs> and it was uh, awesome. <laughs> so much fun. So much fun. I ended up getting to test one of those units as well. And I'm not that uh, radical of a mountain biker, although I'd like to think so sometimes. And cruising through Prospect Park in Brooklyn in the deep trails uh, and, and then going back and looking at the footage. was like, yeah, I can see why people get addicted to this. It's a lot of fun. It was. And so, you know, it's funny that, you know, how small this world is. Here we are today, uh, beer magazine, brewery. Um, you've worked, moved from a world of journalism to a world of brewing and throwing your hat in the ring and are making things now out from a family farm in Newburgh, uh, Newburgh Oregon. I cannot wait to talk to Christian. Uh, they've got, uh, he's got a fantastic story about culturing yeast, brewing with their cultured yeast, making farmhouse beers on an actual farm, using yeast that they've cultured from uh, various areas of the brewery. Uh, he's working on a state malting program to actually grow barley on the farm or adjacent to the farm. Um, we're going to talk about that. Uh, it's a cool story about farmhouse brewing, and I can't wait to get into more. But first, nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with GND Chillers. Innovative modular designs and no proprietary parts propel GND ahead as the premier choice for your glycol chilling needs. Breweries you recognize, like Russian River, Nankasi, Jack's Abbey, Samuel Adams, and more, trust GD to chill the beer you love. Call GD Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft-brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. So Christian, um, you know, obviously I mentioned a little bit about your journalism background and how, um, you know, th that was how we met. Talk to me a little bit about how that journalism career brought you into this kind of sphere of craft beer and then how you made that leap into, uh, you know, from writing about beer uh, into making beer and running a brewery. Well, um, 
Yeah. Uh, well, it, it kind of it goes back about 10 years to around the time we met. Um, I've been living in New York City for nine years, working as a freelance writer, doing a lot of travel stories. And beer had become, you know, my, my specialty and my, my passion. I'd, I'd been writing about beer and thinking about beer, you know, since my freshman year in college when I started homebrewing. And, uh, you know, not very serious homebrewer ever, but uh, I loved it so much. And I made it kind of my personal mission to get magazines in New York where I was writing about travel and food and drink to, to cover beer as well. And so, um, you know, fortunately, I got got a few past the censors and uh, <laughs> it, it, it grew into a into a thing where as a very, very junior staffer on some large magazines, I was able to kind of like take the reins on these big beer writing projects and uh, it was incredibly exciting and uh, fortunately just really dovetailed with a lot of exciting things going on in the beer world. Uh, so flash forward to the end of 2008, nine, you know, full, full crash of the, of the print media as we know it, um, massive you know, seismic changes in, in media. And uh, five of the magazines I worked for as a freelancer supporting myself as a writer went out of business in a six month period. Uh, including all the ones I wrote about beer for, and I realized I needed to make a change, um, and I wanted to come home anyway. I've been dreaming about doing a, a brewery on the family farm, you know, for as, as long as I could legally drink beer and homebrew, and I wanted to get back to that. But um, you know, uh, it, it seemed it seemed kind of impossible, and I was too far away. So, moving home. Um, the the short version is uh, soon after I moved back to the West Coast, within a month or two. I got the opportunity to go out again on the road and do a travel book. So that became my, my first um, really large uh, writing project, which was called The Great American Ale Trail. And uh, I, I sold the book to National Geographic and went out on the road for about a year and a half um, visiting breweries and basically immersing myself in what in 2010 and 2009, 10 and early 11 was just an explosion of incredible growth around the country. Of breweries, um, we've seen that in the last few years here, of course, too. But if you can think back to that era when, um, you know, what was going on nationally, it wasn't really happening in the Northeast yet, where I've been living, and I was always nostalgic about, oh, yeah, got to get back to Oregon and the beer scene. So great there, but suddenly this thing's flowering, and you know, and hundreds of breweries opening, uh, you know probably a, a month even in certain areas. It was just amazing. So I got out on the road. And right, when 600 breweries open in a year, when you only have 1,800 breweries in the country, then, you know, it just feels like this massive thing. It, it was crazy. I mean, and uh, for me, the the first, the thing that really, the tipping point was going to the GABF for the first time. I got to go out for a magazine. Uh, I remember standing, you know, in the, in the middle of the hall under Michael Jackson's, you know, black and white portrait, looking around, seeing the thousands of people, uh, seeing all the organ brewers that I knew having the time of their lives, seeing huge lines at all these other breweries. And I, I just realized that, you know, I wasn't going to let another, uh, you know, year pass by without uh, you know, really changing my life to to pursue making beer, pursue the dream of doing the brewery on the farm, and, and leaving New York. That was the moment I decided to leave New York and change my my whole career, which I've been working on for almost ten years. And it, it really suddenly felt very free, freeing, and exciting. And just seeing the energy level that people had, it was so it was so incredible. So I went home and uh, started packing up my stuff, and that was in you know I guess September. Early, late September. By the end of uh, the year, I was out and had moved. 
back home. So anyway, the transition got me back out on the road to write the book. And during that, that time, I realized that it was both a great opportunity to do a good job on the book, hopefully, and an important time in the beer industry, but also to kind of use it as my personal graduate school to, you know, interview brewers at length about, um, you know, the question I would always ask was, what is the hardest thing that you faced in building your brewery? What was the biggest challenge? What are the roadblocks? Because I personally felt super intimidated by the level of brewing going on everywhere. It had just, it had eclipsed what I came up around in college by so far, and there were breweries growing so quickly. Uh, so it was wonderful. I, I made a lot of friends out on the road, and I learned so much and I got to taste so many great beers. It was, it was a, a very difficult project to complete on the deadline that I had, but, uh, <laughs> it was 500 destinations and I had about nine months to do it. And of course I couldn't go to every single one, but, uh, you know, long phone interviews and, you know, I, I got to about 30 States and just, you know, burned myself out completely right, to right. get that thing done. I remember, uh, you'll appreciate this as a journalist. The, the glorious moment of uh, turning in the book was at about 5 a.m. on a rainy Portland uh, morning uh, in May, drinking uh, IPA out of a coffee cup on the street. And uh, I'd started sm smoking again um, to just, like, get some extra energy, which I thankfully haven't touched in many years. But, uh, you know, th this was, like, the uh, the glorious moment of, bang, I just hit send and turned in this. 500 page book and it was like i might as well have been you know very very far away it was a, it was a pretty <laughs> pretty and glorious moment but um anyway that got me out on on the road and into the community i learned a lot and it was just inspiring so um i had the chance to you know once that was done think a lot more seriously about what it was going to take and be based in oregon um, and then around 2013, started renting the space that the brewery is now in. And um, it wasn't until 2014 that there was gear in here. A lot of things happened in between, of course. Um, but um, yeah, it was a it was a wonderful period um, of information gathering and making friends and contacts, going to um, amazing festivals where I would meet a lot of people that I would end up working with. So yeah, it was a very very lucky time. And now you know you are your family had this farm out in Oregon and, and you've, that's where you've landed with this brewery. Um, talk to me a little bit about that plan because popping a brewery out in the middle of agricultural country, uh, you know, mixed on a, on a nut farm with, you know, wineries <laughs> around you, you know, that that's also, you know, its own strategy and not necessarily, you know, you're not necessarily putting a brewery, uh, in a town or in a city of you know, a place like Portland, uh, you know, where the people are, you are building some sort of destination that's rooted in some other other idea. Talk to me a little bit about how you came to the idea of building a brewery in that kind of form, um, you know, and and uh, some of the thought behind that. Yeah, growing up here, it's it's a beautiful farm about twenty one miles from Portland, southwest of Portland. Uh, we grew up farming hazelnuts, or as we we call them in Oregon, filberts. And uh, my parents were in the uh, kind of in the food world. I guess my my late father was a meat packer. And his father was in, in meatpacking. And um, so there's a lot of, like, focus on food and drink growing up. Um, later, my mom and stepdad ran a bed and breakfast out of the farm. And they were very much part of the, the, the growth of this kind of um, the wine scene in, in Oregon. My mother moved to 
the Yamhill County, Willamette Valley area where we, where we are, uh, the heart of Oregon's wine country in 1967, which was just a few months after David Lett got here. Uh, my mother was also from, is also from Napa. And uh, so there were this uh, kind of exodus of people coming out of California. Well, it's hard to call it an exodus. A few people moving into Oregon to, right. um, you know, pursue a, a new kind of life in Oregon that hadn't really been uh, tried out yet. So she came up with uh, a lot of these young winemakers and helped plant vineyards and so forth. I grew up with all this lore and saw the wineries being built, including right next to our farm, um, Rex Hill and A to Z Wine Works. Um, is adjacent to our farm, and they started as a little mom and pop, and now are a national, like a 50-state winery brand. So um, really incredible to see that, and I ended up working in a lot of these uh, wineries um, during and after college for a while. So I think that um, the the big aha moment for me came after college, uh, where, like I said, I'd done some really amateurish homebrewing, and... But I, I won a grant to go overseas for a year on this thing called the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship. And I think I've you know probably bored you to tears about this before, but um, I was so lucky to get this. It changed my life incredibly. It was a grant given to 60 people a year. It still, still is awarded each year, and you can study any passion, any, any topic that you uh, can convince this board um, and letting you study. So I, I uh, submitted a, you know, a proposal to study breweries in Belgium and across uh, Europe and in West Africa uh, to learn about the roots and traditions of brewing techniques around the world. So um, to my amazement, right, a few months before graduation, I won this grant and I had a plan. So when I landed in Belgium, um, I was 22 and I had been given a list of contacts by Charlie Papazian, uh, who I cold called on the phone. And uh, I had his book, and I was like, I called information. You know, he used to call 555 yeah. right? So I called one, you know, I called Charlie in, in Boulder and, and got him on the phone. And I was like, So I won this grant. I have no idea. I'm scared. What am I going to do? Like, I have, to, I have to go to Europe for a year. I, I get to go to Europe for a year. It's incredible. What should, I, what should I do? Who should I call? And he, he, he like, faxed me a list of phone numbers and emails and the first name on the list was Michael Jackson's and then it went on down and it was just like this incredible you know adventure that unfolded and I, I could go on way too long about that year and what it meant for me personally but it was it was amazing and I uh, you know it changed my entire life but when I got to Belgium and I set foot in some farmhouse breweries and Lambic breweries is when I knew I had. I finally realized if I was ever going to build a brewery, it would be on our own farm at home. I had imagined a much more modern, industrial kind of thing. Um, but then when I set foot in these old 18th and 19th century barn breweries, um, uh, particularly in Brussels in that area, I realized that we could do it in our barn, which uh, has uh, you know been here since 1912, and we grew up processing filberts in, and uh, it was empty at that time. So. That's where the dream came alive, and um, you know the, the con it, it seemed real to me. It seemed attainable, um, whereas before I didn't really realize like how how can we ever do this on the farm? It's so far away from people. It's but um, you know when you get to some of the rural and countryside breweries in Belgium, you you see that it's a beautiful tradition. So uh, in my own small way, and you know uh, without much knowledge at all at the time, I really wanted to bring that back here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how you 
decided to, you know, about beers you're going to build and how to focus your kind of brewing energy. Um, before we do that, this episode is brought to you by Mountain Rose Herbs, purveyors of the highest quality organic herbs, spices, and teas. Whether you want to add depth to your next golden triple with classic notes of cinnamon, pepper, and clove, or artfully layer exotic zesty grains of paradise into a perfect ale, adding botanicals to your brewing is an easy way to customize a delicious flavor profile. Mountain Rose Herbs has been providing organic herbs and spices to chefs, herbalists, and dedicated brewers for more than three decades. Learn more at mountainroseherbs.com and get 10% off your first order with the code CRAFTBEER10. Also, Grandstand is your source for the latest trends in branded drinkware, apparel, and promotional items. We make your job easy by serving as your one-stop shop for everything you need to outfit your taproom and fans. Current trends include to-go drinkware, tie-dyed prints, and portable coolers. Visit egrandstand.com forward slash lookbook to see what's trending. So, Christian, you had this idea you're going to start a farmhouse brewery on your farm inspired by, you know, these Belgian greats. Um... How did you move from that kind of conceptual framework for a brewery into, you know, beers in the tank, you know, mash in the mash tun, you know, uh, wart into fermenters and then making some beer? Um, And how did you kind of come from, you know, narrow down this gigantic, broad range of possibility? And, And not just immediately, but over the last few years, how have you continued to kind of work through that process to build this family of beer that uh, Wolves and People is known for now? <laughs> well, very, very, very slowly and, and making a lot of mistakes along the way. But yeah. uh, no, seriously, uh, I mean, inspired by, by those beers, I would say, uh, I, I think I saw the potential to do a brewery that was kind of like a destination out in the wine country because there were so many wineries throwing people, first of all. And no one's drinking uh, much farmhouse beer in the last, you know, 30 years in Oregon until I would say upright and, um, you know, Logston and some of the really path-breaking excellent breweries in the area, Block 15, you know, started like, you know, bringing excellent, you know, Belgian pale ale, Saison's, Grisettes into the lexicon in Oregon. That was so, so inspiring. And uh, I did go and visit Dave Logston at um, his operation uh, among all the other breweries I got to visit while working on the book, I mean, I, I went there and um, shortly after it opened and, you know, just unplugged his brain and I felt so in love with the beers they were doing early on. Uh, and really, so I've just been so fortunate to have, you know, I, I'm a really curious person. I love talking with other brewers and, you know, using the, the kind of beginner's mind approach um, to just plug people for uh, advice and inspiration and really lean on people in the industry to to learn from i was not a professional brewer uh sometimes i still wonder if i am you know there's a lot (laughs) sure um i mean let's face it it's we all got to keep learning uh and everything that we do and you know it's not a good day for me if i I haven't pushed myself to learn something more in the cellar so i you know but i I, um, i think a natural um you know kind of interrogator of of assumptions and um i and, and techniques, and I just love nerding out and talking to brewers who want to share. Unfortunately, people really opened up their worlds to me, um, very graciously sharing you know, every detail you could possibly want to ask. Um, you know, um, across across the brewing industry. So, you know, that was amazing, and it was such a like I said, a very hopeful, happy time to be out there 
talking with brewers and having everyone be so encouraging. Like, right. Hey, that's cool. You're doing this, doing this writing project. Good for you. And also, if you want to do your own brewery, I hope that works out for you. And not like, hey, man, stay in your lane. You know, like people were, people were so supportive of that. So, um, I, you know, I would say, um, the, you know, the, the, the Saison tradition, um, such as it is, it's very hard to put your finger on even what that is. And there's a, so much interesting and uh, invigorating kind of debate on the meaning of farmhouse ale and going on right now. Um, whether or not, it, you know, can, you know, without going off into a tangent, it's just a very, very fertile topic right now. And, uh, but also as a beer style, uh, or a set of styles, a group of styles, and a, an amazingly wide uh, canvas on which to bring some, some creativity and some experimentation. And that, that's what struck me as I traveled around the world, going from the smallest, you know, little startup project, like back in 2010, visiting Hill Farmstead when it had just opened or just about to open, and then going to New Belgium, you know, a couple months later and seeing, you know, acres of fooders, um, you know, seeing ever all the possibilities sure, um, sure. and being trying to be open to that. So for us, you know, it, it, it has been a really winding road and I've been really, really fortunate to work with outstanding coworkers co uh, and, and group brewers here um, to help, help me learn and take me on this journey and, you know, guess where we are today together. So, um, yeah, it's it's been an amazing process. You you briefly mentioned this debate over farmhouse, you know, and the the term. Obviously, uh, some folks get caught up in semantics, and you know, words have meaning. Uh, you know, um, there are a number of breweries that uh, you know choose not to use the name farmhouse for their beers just because they're you know in a in a, a brewery in a uh, uh, an industrial facility, and it's just you know doesn't feel farmhousey. Uh, others, you know, on you know other folks approach it from this is the style and we were going to name it after a style because that is what people are familiar with and the flavor commonality of that is in line with what people expect you know styles have names just because you're making a goza doesn't mean you're in uh, uh leipzig um you know from your perspective you know how do you approach that kind of thinking and uh, what, what's your philosophy around that oh man i mean that's such a hard question to ask i mean i come at it from kind of two two sides one you know uh michael jackson was my hero uh and i was so lucky to get to know him and spend time with him and i think many brewers would agree he's sort of responsible for the modern understanding of beer styles in a way like a lot of people no one was really talking globally about much about beer styles in the way we do today before the new world guide to beer so i had this dog-eared copy and i studied it and it was you know it was like my bible i carried it around in my backpack for a year and you know, like coming out of that approach where there are, is a sort of, um, you know, delineated tradition among certain styles and, and then blossoming into the American craft scene where styles are migrating, brewers are experimenting, yeast strains are swapping, you know, beers are, are entering this wild like jazz age almost of, of experimentation. Those are not irreconcilable uh, sides, but as a, as a brewer, yeah, we do we do struggle with communicating, well, what is this beer? What is this style? Um, does it have the three letters that 99% of people want to hear? <laughs> IPA, IPA, IPA. Right, right. All day. All day. We didn't brew one for the first two years here, actually. And we, 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 you know, we're really proud of them now. But, um, but yeah, we were kind of holding out to, to, to push forward grisettes and, uh, you know, and, and saisons and beer de coupage and a lot of different styles. 
I think it's useful to advance the beer communication and the understanding of beer into um, the world. It's corners of the of the food and drink world that are maybe not as familiar as us brewers are and the way we talk about it. Um, I think it can be helpful, but I also think it can be unnecessarily limiting, um, you know, to kind of like go back and study the BJCP guidelines and be like, well, this isn't really a grisette because X, well, there's a lot of interpretation and a lot of, a lot of uh, interesting uh, debates going on about, you know, what are these things? So I don't come down on any hard, hard edge side of it either way. I, I mean, I think, like I said, Cezanne, Carmel Sale is a beautiful approach to beer making. It's kind of a, a style of beer making rather than a set of flavors that, should or should not be in the glass for someone. And I think it's, it's really beautiful when it opens someone's mind when they taste um, five different kinds of saisons and they realize like so much possibility in that. They can be dry, they can be luscious and tropical, they can be sour, they can be gin barrel aged, they can be you know, black as night. There are so many cool things you can do um, with saisons and farmhouse sales that really, I think, is uh, an invitation to exploration and not a hard and fast kind of, you know, approach to beer making that would, you know, exclude or hold up exploration. Yeah, I mean, historically, all of these terms, styles, etc. I mean, style is just marketing. And, uh, you know, the styles as we've delineated them are generally descriptive more than prescriptive, that they are, um, you know, the guidelines that we that have been handed down or codified and things like BJCP or Great American Beer Festival Style Guide um, yeah, are and they're important. They, Those yeah, are good things. Yeah, but. they are. They but they are describing what commercial brewers are making, and uh, and they shouldn't ever be seen as the things that limit the creativity of those brewers. They are simply means of aggregating groups of things that brewers make so that. Um, like things can be judged. Um, they are not a recipe for the only things that brewers should make. Um, right. You know, styles will continue to evolve and new styles will appear. And, uh, you know, in fact, you can see just how dynamic even the, the idea of styles are today and that, uh, you know, how many new styles appear in, in any given year. And, uh, you know, and so that creativity and not losing sight of what flavors are possible, you know, becomes the thing that you do. Um, and the important thing that commercial brewers bring to the world. Um, and the yeah. styles will follow that. Um, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about your process of, of making, uh, you know, these farmhouse beers, these grisettes, these saisons. Um, you know, and talk to me a little bit about, you know, your initial yeast explorations. Um, you know, that played a big part in your identity for the brewery, building, uh, you know, um, sure. yeast profiles. When I was out there a number of years ago, I guess, was it 2017 or so, it was about a year after you opened. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing just carboy after carboy after carboy <laughs> with, uh, you know, with little, little yeasts, uh, you know, projects, uh, you know, bubbling up in there. And, you know, so that has been a big part of how you define the brewery, um, you know, by those farmhouse yeasts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so starting out, one of the one of the things we that I wanted to do before the brewery was even born was, you know, really tie this brewery to this site. Um, and, you know, insofar as I could make uh, a brewery you know, on, on this land, on this specific place in the world, uh, reflect itself in the glass, 
um, was was the mission, you know, because this is what um, this is like I said, some of the the beers in the Sand Valley uh, in Belgium, and um, you know, the most for me most exciting and notable projects seem to grow out in a way out of the ground that they were literally in. And is that possible? You know, um, and I, I think today that's a concept people are much more comfortable talking about or more loose with. But I, when I started talking about it, at least among the people I was meeting, it was pretty, pretty unusual concept. The idea of um, growing your own yeast uh, from your own, you know, fruits on the farm or, you know, that wasn't certainly very um, widely practiced because, so difficult it's it's very accidental there's a lot of false and not kind of like wrong paths you're going to go down so anyway but i had this kind of half-baked idea that we were going to grow wild yeast off of the plum tree in our meadow and that became the first project uh really at the brewery once the brewery was set up which took about a year you know it was a total ordeal to get the barn ready and um work with our first head brewer to build out the brewery and um you know set it up and then Working through the winters, the two of us, uh, it was Jordan Keeper, who is now uh, heading up the barrel program um, in, at Brussels Beer Project. Great guy. And we went out and, you know, propped, propped some yeast from uh, a tree in the meadow and got a promising, uh, nice, you know, couple of homebrewed saisons off on it. Uh, and, you know, started out with that. The very first batch we brewed uh, on the system was fermented with that beer. But frankly, it stalled out. Um, it's very cold uh, at that time of year when we brewed this beer in the fall and uh, after plum season. And, um, you know, what seemed like a really great idea was suddenly kind of like stalled in the tank. And I think a lot of people who have tried to propagate wild yeast from fruit have run into this problem or off flavors or yeast that never flocks out or who knows there's a lot of you know strange things that can happen um you know and i'm not running a, a scientific lab in here at the time these were just very rudimentary you know stir plate um and some wort and uh some plums down in the, in the jar basically but it smelled wonderful it seemed to have a lot of potential and so we banked it down at um uh down at, uh, in california at white labs and then you know quickly though moved into mixed fermentations because it was like look this is not going to carry the brewery it seemed like this kind of like um hail mary pass to be like our first wild yeast it's not going to be the dupont strain right you know it smelled awesome but what we didn't know at the time which well uh which i want to get to in a second is what what that yeast was probably lacking was just a much warmer environment and better temperature control uh, so fast forward, uh, you know, five years later, we've done um, a lot of wild yeast props from uh, the plums on the property to fir tips to rose hips to, uh, you know, fully wild and spawn projects, um, you know, all kinds of different things, kind of find the different parts of the farm that might be, you know, um, producing a really healthful micro, uh, healthful micro, microflora for, you know, for doing fermentation. So a couple of years ago, I was in Austin at the, the Honey Board has a summit every year that, um, you know, brewers get invited to go on sometime. I was really lucky to be part of it. I met Evan Watson from Plan B Brewery in New York. He gave this talk, which just like totally blew my mind, which was that he had set up beehives and uh, on his farm up um, outside of uh, up in the Hudson Valley, and wanted to uh, to capture wild yeast from the bees from the from the bodies of the bees because they're only pollinating and going around to the most 
um, healthy flowers and fruits and so forth, and not like landing in roadkill like a wasp or something. So a yellow jacket. So he blew. He gave this. First of all, the, we're drinking these beers, and they're just incredibly tasting beers. They're so good. And uh, he's, he gives a really colorful presentation as well. And um, you know, he he had managed to um, create an entire yeast program off of wild yeast captured mm -hmm. from bees and honeycomb and wax from the hive. So in that moment, I just realized I, I became friends with him over that weekend and stayed in touch and got some advice. And I went out and that March went out and set up four hives on the farm um, with the intention of later getting, um, you know, hopefully harvesting some very healthy yeast out of those hives. So that's where we are today. Um, just to, to jump way forward, about two years ago, I pulled various samples of comb and wax and honey out of the hives in, in the early middle, early and late part of the season and prop those up with wort on a stir plate. Um, very, very simple, like I said, pretty unscientific, although, you know, it was as sterile as possible, bringing down a, a sterilized uh, flask and so forth and dropping the sample right in, sealing it up, brushing it up to the brewery and, and letting it rip. And the, unlike the plums, um, the beehive yeast seemed to um, be a lot more sort of even and, and vigorous and, and continuing to produce beautiful aroma. So um, this is where, um, after we had several of these going that were all just smelling great, but all slightly unique, um, I contacted Nick Impelitary of the Yeast Bay, uh, who has just relocated to the Portland area um, from Oakland and Berkeley. And um, the Yeast Bay, for those of if anyone doesn't know about that, is an amazing project. He's kind of a yeast wrangler who um, sells uh, home brewing strains and commercial strains based on blends and um, props that he goes out and creates. And the Yeast Bay um, it, it had been supplying us with some very beautiful, uh, you know, Belgian Saison strains, Wallonian strains, uh, Brett, Brett blends. And um, Nick and I had gotten to know each other and really enjoyed hanging out, talking beer and He'd been out to the brewery a bunch of times, and so we started kicking around this idea, like, what, you know, could, could he help on this, this beehive project? And I told him about Evan and uh, at Plan B, and so he got involved, and this is where things really got amazing and interesting. He, he took those samples back to his, his lab and propagated them all out, isolated six different unique, um, you know, six isolates from the various combinations we provided him and then we brought those and he brewed six little mini batches of beer brought them back to us for a blending uh, and tasting session and uh the first uh batch um of a beer we now call wild queen was born we, we found a nice blend um and he learned about a lot about uh this yeast in that process and you know had the dna analyzed and we learned that it was um a uh wild strain of sac saccharomyces called uh, saccharomyces variation gulardi which is a kind of a probiotic strain of wild yeast that t t tends to live on the skins of wine grapes mm. so no surprises right. uh, that the winery is on two sides of the brewery so a huge vineyard so our bees were heading up the hill um hanging out on some organ pinot noir and uh, various uh, grapes and coming back to the hive so um, he learned, too, um, in his experiments that it really wanted to ferment really high, 75 to 80 degrees. And he was getting 90%, 89 to 90% um, efficiency, you know, like 
uh, on that uh, on those fermentations. So uh, the most recent, um, and sorry, I'm going on too long about this, but the the most recent one we we narrowed in on one particular isolate that seemed to be the most promising, and propped that up. And he recently released that as a beta strain for home brewers um, available through the East Bay, and those uh, they're gone now, but. Um, he's going to prop it up again, he says, and and put him out there. And, you know, the, the aroma on this was so exciting because, you know, it, the promise of a, of a yeast that comes from this exact piece of ground was kind of realized. And, this, the, you know, this, I've got it in tank right now. I wish we had, like, smell of vision. <laughs> you, could, you, could, right, you could stick right. your nose in this tank because it smells like guava and mango and banana and lime peel and you know it has this crazy tropical thing going on and yeah so i'm very excited about that i want to i want to talk to you a little bit about some of the variations on those you know for so for people that may be trying to culture you know their own yeast at home um you know if you're talking about six different isolates here you know trying to figure out how you decide you know um which ones to to kind of move forward with before we do that abe beverage equipment is your trusted source for complete brewing and packaging solutions whether you're just starting out or looking to expand abe offers brew houses from three to 60 barrels and canning lines from 15 to 90 cans per minute call abe beverage equipment at 402-475-BEER or visit abeequipment.com to learn more. Located in Lincoln, Nebraska, Abe is your trusted source for your brewery equipment. Visit abeequipment.com for complete brewery solutions. Yeah, so as you taste through these, you know, I'm, I'm always, I love to get into the minds of brewers as we try to connect the language that brewers use to make judgments about things with their, their taste buds themselves, you know, because that's just one of those kind of fundamental developmental skills um, that is hard to learn and that, that people, you know, so as we delve into that, like as you're tasting the differences between some of these, you know, these different, uh, um, yeasts that are part of these, you know, varying cultures that you've pulled out of, out of your, uh, hives, um, how would you describe the differences between those and how did you make decisions as to what you liked and didn't like? Yeah. Interesting. You know, um, the, the fermentations were all very um, sort of constant, all at a certain temperature, the same grain bill. Um, and the isolates then presented themselves in a more distinct way, you know, by, by all things being equal, right? Um, I think, you know, the nose knows there's, there's so much that jumps out of a, of a, of a sample or a glass of beer um, or, you know, a yeast sample or anything that you're trying um, that, um, you know, kind of, it's kind of like, tickles the brain almost so like it reaches places that you're not expecting sometimes um and i think there's you know there's a certain harmony um that you're looking for between spice and floral notes between uh you know certainly how much like are there volatile like esters or ethanol type you know aromas that might seem harsh um and so we're looking for the you know that that kind of pleasing overall and and frankly i think a fruitiness and saisons and farmhouse sales is often desired and helps kind of like loft the uh, the complexities of whatever mixed uh, grain bill you might have used um you know certain certainly a nice component of farmhouse sales is you know big big esters you know um so i think we're looking for that potential 
Um, and also maybe a certain kind of X factor that seems a little bit um, maybe unusual. Um, a lot of these samples smell very similar, um, but one in particular um, just kind of just jumped out, you know, and uh, it's hard to exactly know why. Like I said, this was a semi-scientific process, um, hardly on our end of things where I'm out there just, you know, sticking a jar in the, in the hive basically. But um, when Nick got involved, it got a lot more uh, detailed and it's just been a wonderful process, but I think for anyone who wants to try this out, we would be so psyched for people to go to the yeast bay um, and order um, some of this yeast, which we decided to call Forager, um, for the bees, which are out foraging. Um, and I've learned a, a lot about beekeeping. It's been really fun. Uh, I set up the hives um, the same month that my son was born. And uh, so we had a baby and 10,000 young bees <laughs> on the farm at the same time. Yeah. Uh, I don't recommend that in the future to anyone who wants to to get hives. It's a lot of work, but it's it's a really magical um, thing to element to have, even if you just have a little backyard. Um, bees are really really amazing animals. What kind of recipe do you you know, use when you're kind of testing you know these the you know doing these yeast experiments? Um, are there you know some certain elements of recipes that you find help tease out the characteristics of these? Uh, better than other characteristics yeah i mean just like with beer um we always start with a really fresh malt um something kind of a little more neutral you know a pale frankly a pale pilsner malt something that um not, not lacking for quality but uh giving you a nice uh palette or you know kind of a baseline to, to yeah. detect aromas and then uh, you know throwing in some oats throwing in some rye throwing a some other specialty grain, for example, to just kind of give the yeast different um, different things to chew on, see how they behave with some different kinds of uh, food, essentially. Um, you know, there's there's so many different ways. Obviously, sure. you can go with it. Um, but And then on the bitterness side, I think, you know, everyone has their own theories on it. But, you know, we wouldn't go much below 25, 26 IBUs just to, you know, retard any um, unwanted bacterias. Um you know, and give uh, give the yeast a chance. And who would want a yeast that uh, you know can't handle that kind of IBU anyway? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Um, let's talk a little bit about how you have kind of taken um, you know these kind of wild isolate yeast uh, and developed a family of you know farmhouse beers out using them. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you know now having set how this yeast behaves, um, how have you been able to kind of manipulate that, you know, into different styles of beer? Well, not different styles, but at least different expressions within this broader kind of farmhouse ale family. Well, you know, the first, the first yeast that we, we called Sebastian, right. that was the plum yeast, uh, ended up going into like three quarters of our barrels and there's still barrels that we're actually tasting this week. We pulled barrels out that have been buried um, in the back of the cellar with batch one, you know, batch, uh, somehow we never, we never use one of those barrels and tasting those beers. It's been so, so interesting to go back and see long-term how some of those have formed, uh, and come along. And, you know, um, some of the beers are outstanding and some are, you know, are goners. But, um, the, the second thing uh, that we did after the Sebastian strain was create a mixed culture for sour beer. Uh, we call that Amigos. Uh, Amigos is still throughout the, many of the barrels in our cellar. Um, that 
strain has really, you know, um, evolved over time. It was uh, basically dregs from about six of the great um, sour beer breweries in the world um, and, uh, you know, evolving in, in oak um, over time. Uh, so a lot of our beers like Sebastian Cherry, Pesca, um, beers that a very limited number of which we've um, been able to put out just being such a small brewery. But if people have tasted those, it's, it's a nice culture with a, a mix of sourness, sometimes edging with, you know, a hint of acetic acid on, you know, it's like, it's a grabby, like it really, but in a pleasant way, uh, a way we find really compelling. Um, and, uh, I'm, that, that continues. And there is a, a third kind of group that we went into with our punchins. We have a bunch of white wine punchins and have a lacto, um, and lacto PDO, uh, combo. And, um, that has been, uh, it's kind of difficult to handle sometimes, but, um, you know, that kind of magic elusive, uh, you know, Russian river ideal of Brett Pedio and Lacto acting in total harmony. Um, but that, uh, that group of, of yeasts lives on in barrels and we're, we're kind of currently now steering that more towards a, a classic Saison Brett profile. Um, you know, eliminating PDO not, Although one of our favorite beers that we have on draft right now and in bottle we're about to release, it went through a massive PDO stage, um, almost eight months wow. to clean up. But the beer, frankly, it's one of the tastiest beers we've ever been able to put together. And, you know, it was so frustrating at the time. Um, but, you know, it's kind of like we invited that into our brew house and we've had, you know, we've been wrestling with it sometimes, but uh, sometimes it's worth the risk. Uh, other times not, but... Um, so this is the ropey phase of PDO that's really causing you some issues, you know, where, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Have I you mean, found any yeah. ways to kind of mitigate that or push, push it along <laughs> or uh, kill it with fire, encourage it to <laughs> do the next thing? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's a whole side thing. We're still evolving in, in that way. We're about to invest in a steam uh, cleaner yeah. though, just for, um, the, the fooder that's sitting behind me here in the brewery today, we just got a large, very large fooder um, for the this new program, the Wild Queen program we're talking about, and the Forager yeast. So um, jumping forward, I mean, to the Forager, the Beehive strain, it's pretty been very new. I mean, we really did one beer um, with Wild Queen and or with Forager, excuse me, and uh, it was well received. Um, we gave this new beer, the one in tank right now, a, a much different grain bill, uh, much higher firm temps and uh, a whole different kind of approach. Um, so it's really the story is kind of being written right now on that one. Um, we're very excited about what we're detecting in the tank right now. Um, it has almost like a, some Kvike strains have that kind of like crazy tropical smell. Um, also one of my favorite, favorite breweries in the world is Phantom um, in Belgium. And uh, I learned that one of the, there's been some studies on um, his family of yeasts. And we learned that one component of, one of the he studied that phantom is Saccharomyces boulardii. Uh, I haven't seen it in any other kinds of brewing studies or anywhere else in the world being used. Um, so we were really excited when we saw that um, that might be um, one of the elements com 
you know, kind of contributing to the flavor. I mean, far be it from me to to uh, say I really know anything about the the magic that goes on in that brewery, but that's something we read, and it seems to be a connection. And maybe Bellardi is that kind of sensory uh, bridge there um, to these kind of like ripe Sauvignon Blanc winey kind of aromas that uh, I've certainly enjoyed on some Fantome beers. So, you know, there's there's so many differences um, between the kind of beer they're making and doing and what and what we aspire to do. But he's always been an inspiration. Uh, I think many brewers share that sentiment. So that's maybe the Bullardi connection, you know, and that's what we're going to keep learning about um, as we go on. And we see how this yeast uh, evolves in our environment. Um, because it will. Um, do you have any other yeast kind of uh, experiments or areas that you're pushing into to kind of try, test, and, uh, you know, uh, see what else you can come up with? <laughs> How many times can we uh, reharvest some uh, beautiful Argustiner? Now, um, now, we have, uh, you know, it, there, there's a bunch of things back in the, in the cellar that, you know, we're, you know, kind of playing around with. And, yeah, we're going to keep trying things from the farm as, as time allows. Um, one of the members of my team um, has grown some beautiful, brewed some beautiful beers. Kevin uh, manages our tap room, has brewed some beautiful beers with rye, um, you know, rye berries basically, raw, thrown huh. into some work. And um, he did some very nice Goza style um, beers. So basically a straight lacto fermentation coming off the husks of the grain. And um, so um, as we move towards our this really exciting phase here of growing our own um, barley um, we'll certainly uh, hope to begin fermentations with straight barley um, and you know creating some lactic culture uh, off the husks of those um, you know those uh, grains that we grow here. see I don't even need to host this podcast because you just created the perfect segue for me <laughs> it's like you're a professional at this or something <laughs> Um, but that was my next question. It's the beer is the beer. There talking. you go. Let's um, let's pivot a bit and talk a little bit about this estate barley program. You know, uh, you know, obviously you are very engaged with uh, you know creating uh, elements for your beers on the farm, the same farm that you're brewing the beers on. Growing barley at a small scale and uh, on a few uh, several acres, um, you know, is is kind of a, a tall order. And then oh, yeah. figuring out how to mall, you know, obviously you know. Agricultural crops like barley generally benefit from scale, and, cer- and certainly, in order to malt barley, you need um, you know equipment that is not necessarily inexpensive, uh, more space, uh, you know, and for several acres of it, I mean, there's just no cost-effective way for anyone to try to do that. Um, so, talk to me a little bit as you envision this idea of ma- of, of creating your own barley and estate barley. Um, it, it does seem like a, a crazy idea, if I'm just being perfectly honest. <laughs> I was just going to say, seems a little yeah, insane. You, 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 you've described my insanity perfectly. Uh, <laughs> but talk to me a little I mean, bit about this... you know some of those parameters around it and how you're trying to you know um, first why you would even bother doing it, and then you know, some of the problems that you've solved along the way to kind of, uh, you know, and what the program as a whole looks like. It, it is daunting, man. It is. It, there's no question. Um, going back to the beginning, when I thought about, about this brewery, I wanted to name it after the farm that we're on. It's called Springbrook. And, you know, at some point, um, you know, began to realize that, you know, maybe the 
the, the land here could, could support uh, grass seeds. And um, there's there when I was growing up, 65 acres of hazelnuts, but they began to die out over the years. It's a long story, but uh, we started to do kind of imagine um, a different use for the farm or different um, different things that would grow. And so um, there's really no barley farming um, or brewing barley here in the Willamette Valley anymore. Uh, there used to be, um, but recently some projects have, have popped up and then of course the amazing craft malting uh scene that's going on in oregon and around the country is just if you know if you're not paying attention to this people are really missing out i think on some just uh some really ambitious and beautiful projects going on so um i started to spend time getting to know some of the craft malsters of the northwest like skagit and mecca grade and um you know, the guys at Link and Mainstem um, and, you know, trying out some beers. Uh, and what had once seemed like a pretty much impossible idea started started to sound a little more likely. Um, I remember this one day we talked, uh, we were talking about um, planting some barley here and, um, a, and a, an old timer in the area came into the brewery with his daughter had heard about it. And he, he had been a barley farmer in the Lamette Valley um, until, you know, sometime just sh shortly after World War II and uh, an arsonist or a firebug had like burnt down his maltings or whatever. But he was like, yeah, bring it back, man. And I was like, wow, it's, it's been like 50 years since, uh, or 70 years or something since anyone's done anything in the Willamette Valley. And then Gail Goshi out at Goshi Farms, which is a, a very well-known sure, sure. uh, beautiful farm. Yes, she planted some wind malt and uh, malting it up up in Washington, and it started to sort of seem like there was a, a possibility for Willamette Valley Mall to um, make a showing. And, and so if you have other people you can call and kind of like talk to and kick the idea around with, it starts to feel a little more attainable because well beyond our, our expertise, we're not barley farmers, we have no idea what we're doing at first, but we've been able to connect with some very you know passionate local farmers and come up with a plan. Um, and so for us, the, the next step was securing some ground, and we leased five and a half acres from the winery next door, uh, Rex Hill A to Z Wineworks, um, and they, they agreed they'd love to see us using it. It's not good grape land for them uh, at this stage anyway. They don't see foresee using it, uh, and it's right adjacent to the brewery. So without having to take out any hazelnuts, which we use in uh, several years year-round, we were able to um, you know get a farming plan in place. So hooking up with a local farmer um, and a baker, actually. They have a project called Chattanooga Farms. Um, and so we had to come up with a plan, um, everything from soil prep uh, on forward. So just like we went out and tested the well water, um, was one of the first things I did back in 2013, like, hey, how's our well water? Is it gonna be good for beer making? Yeah, we went out and checked our soil, had some soil testing. And uh, found that you know we're we're gonna have a very favorable conditions for for growing barley here hopefully, mm. but of course there's all kinds of things that can go wrong from weather to you know excessive rains uh, you know resulting in disease and rust and other things that happen in barley. So really the first plantings um, will happen um, this fall and uh, early spring most likely uh, aiming for a, a full planting in spring and. Um, then the malting part gets more interesting. <laughs> so after that, let's, yeah, before we talk about the malting, let's talk like, uh, you know, in terms of barley varieties, um, you know, how, yeah. how'd you go through a process of 
uh, finding a variety that might um, flourish in that kind of Willamette Valley environment? Yeah, so um, I reached out to Gail Goshi first and visited her property um, where she had this really you know, beautiful plot. And she encouraged me to get in touch with a guy at Oregon State University yeah. named Pat Hayes. Yeah, Barley World. Uh, he runs the barley breeding program. Uh, he came out and visited and um, I spent time with him, you know, talking over all the various varieties and approaches we could take towards, you know, soil prep and, you know, having a hopefully successful first harvest. So he's been recommending varieties. Um, we're looking at everything from um, full pint, which is a variety that Oregon State developed, to Thunder and Lightning, which, um, you know, uh, I think it's Thunder, uh, maybe that um, was uh, planted successfully in a test plot out here. Um, and, you know, really we're just going to see what we can get seed-wise, what's available, go with a good spring variety and, and go from there. But, you know, they have a, an amazing um, program down there sure, and a lot sure. of attached research research going on so this will be a collaboration between oregon state and uh, and wolves and people as well to bring students out to you know see what we're doing and see how this the variety that we end up planting does and our conditions and um what kind of soil amendments we have to right. do it's been used as pumice ground for the last five years so pumice from a winery next door has acidified the soil somewhat uh, as you might expect so grape skins and and stems have been spread on that plot for five straight years so we're gonna have to use uh, natural uh, lime to bring the mm. ph back into into a favorable range but anyway it's yeah it, um, it's really been a, a cool kind of uh, process of, of learning and talking to experts who, you know, have great advice for us. And in the end, this is a family farmer who, you know, grew up out here uh, as well. And his, his family's been farming out here since the wagon train days. And um, they're going to drive their equipment down here from uh, pretty far away to, to help us get this uh, disked and, and planted and, and then later harvested. So five five and a half acres of, of barley. What um, what does that yield in terms of uh, pounds of barley? Uh, you know, even like post malting. Um, well, good question. It depends on uh, how you approach farming. So uh, if you're going a more conventional farming route, you know, with uh, you know pest control, uh, right. you know, herbicides and things like that, um, conventional barley can yield up to I think about five tons per acre. Okay. Um, before drying, before cleaning, drying, and malting, um, and then uh, if you go the full organic route, um, which is uh, a whole different ball of wax, um, then you're looking at yields of more like two two tons per acre. We are going to chart a middle ground, most likely. We want to adhere to what are called salmon safe standards. Um, Springbrook Creek runs through our land. It's a protected waterway, and we're already doing a lot to be very careful about. You know, how we take care of this site here but salmon safe protocols is it's an organ thing that um is a kind of a pledge to avoid certain harsh um herbicides fungicides different um treatments um that you may need to use in order to uh you know really keep the the soil topsoil extra healthy so um farmers are totally on board with that and the, the winery's you know glad that we're going to take that route too so we should see off of five acres somewhere between, you know, 10 and 20 uh, tons of grain. You know, wash it, 
uh, take it out um, to uh, the malting process. So we're we're we've, we're looking at doing that with Seth Klon at Mechagrade, and he's uh, he's excited about the project. So um, we'll be trucking it over in super sacks uh, or in a massive open truck yeah. of some kind, or you know, a giant dump truck of some kind, you know, covered up, but. Um, to bring out there and then do a custom malting with him and then uh, and then transport it back to the valley. It's totally insane. It's uh, <laughs> logistically. I mean, I know you uh, up in New York. The Admiral is it Admiral? Admiral no, that's in San Francisco. Francisco. Yeah. The the one uh, there's another one in upstate New York um, that I saw Castle. Is it Castle? Hmm. Anyway, um, there was uh, something online about of them. Evan uh, Plan B was talking about them floor malting. You know, the the lengths to which craft monsters are going is so so awesome. Absolutely, and we've you know we've talked so, to plenty of monsters on the podcast in the past. Um, it's such an interesting and important part of the beer process, and uh, don't know that necessarily get enough credit as they deserve. How does um, how does you know say uh, uh, ten or twelve or or fourteen tons of malt? Uh, you know, impact your production in a year. Um, is that going to fully satisfy, um, you know, your kind of base malt needs for a year? Is that more than you need and you'll spread some out or, uh, you know, what, what is the kind of vision around that? Yeah, good question. I mean, first of all, we have to have a successful harvest right. and successful sure. malting. And, you know, there's a lot of things that could go uh, wrong before you get there. There's so many things. Yeah. yeah and we, we're, I'm very humble. We're all very humble about the goals, um, you know, knowing going into it that there's a high level of risk and we may not get the results that we want the first time out. But, you know, we believe in the importance of, you know, lowering the carbon footprint. I mean, a lot of brewers just click a mouse and get a container or, you know, pass pallets of, of grain uh, coming from Germany or across the country the next day or two days later. And that's awesome. That's the modern world. Um, but, uh, I think that we want to stop and consider, um, if we have the opportunity to consider those impacts, um, not everyone, it's not important to everyone and that's fine. We don't judge anyone for the, for the choices they make in ingredients. And we certainly have, like the mouse many a sure, time to get sure. ingredients and you may but, still you know, once you're we, harvesting and everything depending exactly. on how things go yeah, sure i mean sure we're, we're realistic about it but we we this is the thing that we have the opportunity to do that here so it almost feels um like a kind of compulsion like we have to try this we have to see if we can make this happen and get a quality base malt um for you know for our brewery and maybe for others so as the capacity is hard to say we're really small. Yeah. We, you know, we, we brewed 180 barrels in the first year, last year, 380. So we've kind of roughly doubled each year, but we're still under 400 barrels. This year with the coronavirus um, closing us down for three months, most all on-site consumption right. done for three and a half months. So, um, you know, production is slowed for sure. But um, I would think that if we get to our goal – um, that the five acres should be a pretty good match, um, you know, uh, for for a solid year of brewing um, or two with also making some available to home brewers or other commercial brewers who might want to try some of the malt out, um, you know, again, assuming that we like where, where it's at. So, but, you know, we haven't talked about growing hops here other than a few like decorative right. vines, but 
you know, the goal, if this works, then the next, the, the next stage would be to try to convert a couple acres um, to some hops as well. Then we could really, I mean, the, the dream of doing this vertically integrated farm where we're using our own well water, we're growing our own barley, we've got hops on site, we've got a lot of fruit, we didn't even talk about that, but beyond the plums and bees, there's a lot of other fruit growing here that we use. Um, and the honey um, for, for the yeast and the honey itself would really close the loop for us on being able to do an estate beer. And I kind of don't love that term, estate beer. It sounds kind of like sort of haughty or something. The way you charge more money it, for it. Yeah, I mean, and I, I what, look, what people are doing, you know, there's a lot of great projects um, where people are doubling down, working their butts off to grow their own ingredients. And you've got to respect the, the hustle when someone is, you know, when they're doing it. Um, I think it's, if it comes from an honest place and someone is doing it with the right intentions, uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And um, so you've got, you know, wheat, Wheatland uh, Spring is, you know, growing their own barley. You've got Bale Breaker up in Washington is growing their own barley and hops now, too. It's, I, I really think that it's the beginning uh, of a lot of these similar projects. And we'd be so stoked to be just a small part of a wider movement. Yeah, again, it's, you kind of need the perfect site for those things to be able to grow together. Right. You know, to have a barley positive climate and hops at the same time it's very unusual i think the willamette valley is that place i always have felt that yeah um so i i hope we see more projects but you know it's it's moving in that direction for us and yeah it's super super impractical but it's inspiring and you know we we talk about it every day you know are we moving in that direction what are we doing here to move that forward and you know i don't know if people deep down does the beer consumers really care on a broad level Probably not, um, you know. Uh, I think brewers know and maltsters know, you know. And Seth is brewing beer out at his farm now, and you know you've got the guys who got the Skagit, really serious beer people uh, on the barley growing side, uh, you know, not just growing a crop and selling it. To yeah, them. I think the the question honestly is not do people know and care about that now, um, but the question is. Will people know and care about that 10 years from now or 15 or 20 years from now that, um, you know, a lot of these things take time to um, germinate and then blossom and then you know, even gain consciousness in the broader world of, of consumers. But if anything is true, it's that the ability of consumers to discern difference to purchase based on values as well as. Um, you know, flavor and excitement and innovation and everything else, um, the increasing uh, importance of those things to consumers and their ability to parse out smaller and smaller differences between brewers who are otherwise, in a lot of ways, making a lot of the same thing, um, that ability to parse those out is increasing and does increase every year. And so, you know, I think it's a little, you know, it's a lot of investment in, you know, now for something that's not going to pay off immediately that, but it may pay off 10 years from now. It takes quite a bit of um, vision and, uh, you know, maybe even sheer stupidity at some level, uh, (laughs) you know, to, to look that far ahead. I I don't mean to insult you on that, but you know, there's, there's a certain stubbornness that it takes to kind of push forward thinking, knowing, knowing this could and should matter at some point in the future 
and that you can be there when it does or also not just be there when it does but be a force that also helps make it matter um yeah i would agree you know and i think if we've learned we've learned a lot of lessons um culturally uh so many more to be learned obviously in the last year but with the onset of the coronavirus and the kind of uh frankly, in the early days of the pandemic, a kind of collapse of local uh, food um, programs, uh, you know, shipping options, shopping options. What we saw in the Willamette Valley was an incredible flowering of um, the local and CSA kind of based model where um, our friends that run um, a beautiful dairy down the road called Godspeed Hollow um, suddenly lines out the door for their raw milk and eggs. Um, you know, and another project down in McMinnville called Mac Market, which is a, a kind of a uh, beautiful open co- co-working space with a lot of different, um, you know, uh, suppliers, you know, lines out the door for the CSA and the baked goods and things like that. Because, frankly, the, the, there's an erosion of trust uh, in the conventional large-scale industrial food uh, distribution networks. And, you know, not to get too meta on it, but as a brewery, we also found a very, very sharp um, increase in traffic here, uh, foot traffic for beers to go at first, which helped uh, helped us keep the lights on for the few, first few months. But then upon safely reopening, frankly, we're busier than we have been in the past. Um, we have to manage it much differently than in the past, but it's going very smoothly. And people feel very thankful to have a local brewery. Um, and the fact that you know, ingredients will in the future be coming from a place they can see from their table, I think, is, uh, is going to be is rare. And so we're really just proud to be a, part of, a small part of that movement going on. And I think it's happening. I mean, I think it's happening around the country and wh- where it can take root. You know, it should. It's really exciting. Um, but again, it's, it's, it's only one way of making beer. There's a lot of other beautiful, uh, you know, traditions and different ways to make beer. And, you know, we certainly draw from a lot of different traditions too. So, um, but it's, uh, yeah, it, I'm stubborn <laughs> and, you know, I think my team is stubborn. We all like, we, we want to, you know, grit our teeth and spit a little bit yeah. and kind of like get this done, you know, and it's, it has been hard. We've been pushing the rock uphill for years, uh, with land use laws locally and with neighbors and people not understanding what we're trying to do or, you know, giving up on it or, you know, just pushing back. And it's really been hard. Um, but I'm, I, I, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I've, I've loved what is, it. you know, in your planning for this, what, um, what is the cost difference of say, uh, pushing forward with your own barley growing and malting compared to say, ordering it in from a, a larger, uh, you know, barley, uh, maltster and concern. Ooh, oh man, and that's the that's a magic question. I mean, you know, we're in closing. You know, these days, like I said, you can get like free shipping on. You know, we can drive up to the warehouse for a massive malt supplier and fill our delivery van with twelve hundred pounds of grain on the same day. Um, you know, th- those things. You know, for sixty five cents a right. pound for four malts of barley from Bavaria, amazing. Um, but you know. Is it going to cost more? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, without revealing pricing of some of the other craft maltsters we buy from, because uh, I don't know if they would sure, want me to sure. mention it, but it's well, anyone can find out what it costs, but it's probably 30% more expensive across the board. Um, however, in breweries, there's so much overhead that isn't your grain cost. You know, in any given batch of beer, um, grain is significant, but these days, 
uh, aroma hops as well coming in at like twenty three dollars right. a pound, you know, for Nelson this year. So you know, if you're paying uh, ninety cents a pound versus sixty five cents a pound on a for us an eight barrel batch, um, it's not like that radical of a difference. It would result in a few cents more per glass if we think of it that way. So we we're happy to eat that to support local monsters. Um, and you know, we're, this is not one of those operations, frankly, that runs with the, uh, the slide rule and the actuary where the abacus right, where we're like, right. Nope, can't, can't use mecha grade. Like, you know, we, we want, we're about results. We want to get, you know, the best tasting beer in every glass that we can. And sometimes it's maybe not needed, you know, or it doesn't feel like we, we need to go that direction flavor wise for a certain style because maybe the hop presence is so right. high that no one's going to detect whether we have a craft malt behind, uh, you know, a lot of dry hops and local hops. So, well, Kristen, the way we normally finish up the podcast is the question, uh, what does success look like for you? And I have some ideas about how you may answer that <laughs> because I think we've kind of talked about uh, this kind of closing the loop thing. But, uh, you know, in a broader sense, you know, for you, for Wolves and People, what uh, what is the end game and what, uh, you know, is or is there an end game? And where at what point will you know that you have achieved what you want to achieve and that uh, you have found the success that you would hope to find <laughs> oh man uh it, it, it's like uh the the old story about going to the top of the mountain to find the buddha and you get up there and he's like hey man where's my beer or something or i, I mean we don't know we like we we don't know what is to become of, of this project in some regards and i used to think that like opening day would be would, would have been the, like the happiest moment of of my life or something um or a professional you know, beer, beer career anyway. Um, and, you know, it turned out that that day was just the beginning of a long, you know, hard road and it was time to get up the next morning and, you know, keep, keep pushing away and, um, keep working. And I think that for us, you know, making a beer that where we grow every single ingredient on the farm, you know, except the glass or the can is going to feel like one of those moments where we can really be proud of what we attempted to do. Um, can we do a spawn beers in the attic, you know, of this barn and add that into the mix? Yeah, that was always the plan from the start. And we quickly pivoted away from that to release beers sooner in three weeks rather than in two <laughs> years. <laughs> that was one of those dreams are like, oh yeah, let's start an all spawn brewery and then release beers in 2017 or 18. And it was back in the early days. So, you know, I, I think that I really want to build, um, a happy, you know, community inside the brewery and, you know, grow with my team and uh, make this a place or continue to be a place where our neighbors and, you know, family and friends come and gather here whenever they can, where brewers come and visit. And, you know, uh, you know, there, there's little glimpses of that happiness that come through and that satisfaction on a, like, sunny afternoon where there's, like, 20 people from a winery during harvest, uh, you know, uh, shaking off a hard day with some beers and the sun's going down and it just feels really perfect. And there's days where I'm just like brewing and it's quiet in the cellar and, you know, um, you really, really feel lucky to be doing what you're doing and um, like any, anything's possible. So, you know, uh, a full night's sleep uh, is always uh, <laughs> the best thing you can hope for. I, did I mention I have a two and a half year old son? <laughs> Teo, uh, he, he's the yeah. best. Um, he loves running around in the brewery. 
So, you know, who knows? Uh, I would, I'd love to see a lot of other farmhouse breweries open in Oregon um, and around the country, around the world. I just, you know, for people who are as, um, you know, ha- have that good fortune to have a site or a spot to do it and they believe in, believe in it enough to be, you know, taking that risk, taking that step uh, forward, um, then, you know, more, more power to them. And I, I remember being out in the Shelton Brothers Festival in New York last year and talking to um, some Lambic, celebrated Lambic brewery. Um, I won't say which one, but he was telling me they're, they're aggressively moving into barley farming. And I was like, why? why? You know, I mean, I, I think I know why, but tell me and he said well it's the only way it's the only way the only way to control quality going forward and i thought was i don't necessarily think it is the only way to make quality beer right um but i was so uh, struck by his conviction in that moment and he kind of leveled and looked at me like this is happening and um it was just another one of those moments when i was like well you know um there's some other people out there crazy enough to do this too. So, you know, let's let's keep trying, you know, and keep expanding the way people talk about the year, you know, adding to the conversation, you know, and not, not setting rules and setting down, you know, proclamations on what is or what isn't good yeah, here. Yeah, well, here's to the crazy ones. Nearly 2,000 breweries across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico partner with Yandy Chillers. Set your compass by RAR North Star Pills. Mountain Rose Herbs offers the highest quality organic herbs, spices, and teas. Grandstand is your source for the latest trends in branded drinkware, apparel, and promotional items. Abe Beverage Equipment offers complete brewing and packaging solutions. And Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions are the best way to support this very podcast. Um, Christian, if people want to learn more about Wolves and People, um, where do they find you? Yeah, um, we uh, are online at wolvesandpeople.com, Instagram. Wolves and people, Facebook as well. Um, we have a newsletter you can sign up for, which is rather infrequent, but um, we do our best to keep people informed. Instagram is pretty solid. We we definitely update on almost daily on new beers coming out and uh, you know reaching out to our community and uh, learning more. Well, fantastic. So, uh, you can also just eat, yeah come to the brewery or email us directly, and you know, we do our best to stay in touch with people. It's been really fun to talk to you about your uh, your farmhouse authentic uh, approach to. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not even going to use that word because it's so loaded with other meanings. Um, but I appreciate your thoughtful, um, intentional approach to brewing um, beers that are made on your farm from you know ingredients grown on your farm or cultured on your farm. Uh, it's a really cool story, and uh, I hope it's inspirational Thank for you. people out there. Thank you. Um, thanks for talking with me on the podcast, Christian. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.